Thank you very much. You're getting a dose of the military this afternoon, I noticed. If I'm a little bit leaned towards the Air Force, it's because what I am, I owe to the Air Force. I'll explain why. Back in 1941, at the age of 18, I came out of high school, and since more or less not only America's freedom, but the freedom of the world was threatened, we looked at it that freedom was worth fighting for, and I enlisted in the Army Air Corps. Now, I have a high school education. Many of the honored guests here are all doctors. And when I talk to them, it's like talking to a snake charmer about fish worms. But believe you me, if you want to ask me a question, I'll answer it so you understand it. So. <laughs> After enlisting in the Air Force, the Air Force taught me to be a mechanic. And then I applied for pilot training in 1942, entered, got my wings in 43, became a fighter pilot, was sent to combat in Europe. I fought the Germans as a Mustang pilot for almost two years, shot down 13 German airplanes. And just to show that I wasn't so good, I got shot down myself, evaded through Spain, came back and finished my combat tour, came back to the States, and entered right field as a maintenance officer, later attended the test pilot school and became a test pilot. And there opened up the most interesting period of my life, and that was research flying in the first rocket aircraft, primarily the X-1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, and other research vehicles. One thing that I've noticed as an Air Force character, as our previous speaker mentioned, that everyone should be, and that is, in combat, as in research flying, you never take life too seriously. If you do, it gets to you. The primary object is to concentrate on what you're doing so that you can survive. Now, I was lucky because, number one, you've got to be at the right place at the right time. I have never had any career planning. My career in the Air Force was not particularly in the Air Force because I liked airplanes, because I didn't see an airplane on the ground until I was 15. I didn't ride in an airplane until a, an airplane that I was crew chief on the engineering officer asked me if I wanted to fly in it. I flew in it, became sick, thought, what a terrible occupation, cleaned up my airplane. And when I became a pilot, and of course, of course then became more interested in flying and concentrating on what I was doing, then it became fun. Now, I'd like to run by you sort of the evolution of what has happened in the way of aircraft performance and, and the technology that's gone into these airplanes in a real short two or three minutes. Back in the airplanes that we used in World War II, such as the Mustangs, had the capability of diving up to about 80% of the speed of sound, or 0.8 Mach number. And we frequently attained those Mach numbers, or speeds, in dogfights because most of our flying was started at high altitude in escorting bombers. After the war, of course, the X-1 came along, and that airplane was specifically built to fly beyond the speed of sound because we had no idea what was going on in the region of the speed of sound because we had no wind tunnel data and uh, no other way to get data. The X-1 uncovered one real important fact. That was, if we expected to operate aircraft in the region of the speed of sound, we had to have flying tails on them. We found that out with the X-1. Consequently, we built that capability in the F-86, which was on the drawing board in 47 when we were flying the X-1. And consequently, when the F-86 was pitted against the MiG-15 and 51 and 52, we shot down some 12 MiGs for every F-86 we lost. 
And then in 53, a lieutenant defected to South Korea with the first MiG that we were able to get our hands on. And I was sent over there to do the flight test work on the aircraft, and it was real obvious as to what its problem was when you looked at it. It had a fixed horizontal stabilizer, and above .93 Mach number had no maneuvering capability at all, whereas the F-86 had a flying tail. Then we developed afterburners for the engines, and, and then we were able to, to fly aircraft at supersonic speeds in straight and level flight, such as the F-100. But we got into a problem. When these airplanes were flying at supersonic speeds, the stability on the aircraft increased because of supersonic flow over the whole, air, the whole airplane. And stability and maneuverability run hand in glove. The more stable an airplane is, the less maneuverable it is. So consequently, we had to make these airplanes the follow-on to the F-100, such as the 104, F-4s, and others. We had to make them so unstable that we had to put stability augmentation systems on them to keep them at least flyable on the part of the pilot. But we got again into trouble as we went on with airplanes like the F-4 Phantom. And these aircraft, as they attained or departed, stalled and got into a spin, they were so unstable we couldn't recover them and consequently lost a lot of airplanes and crews. Then that was the reason the fly-by-wire systems came about, such as the F-16, F-18, F-20. What we do, we let a computer fly the airplane and then program that computer so that it does not let the airplane exceed angles of attack, yaw angles, or roll rates, regardless of what the pilot asked the computer to do. And that way, we can make that airplane more unstable, consequently making it more maneuverable. And that's the way we're sitting today with aircraft such as the F-16, F-18, F-20. We've also gotten into very complicated cathode ray tubes and presentations that show the pilot anything he wants to know. We've done away with round dials, and we project all of these CRCs up on the windshield so that the pilot never looks in the cockpit, never takes his hand off the stick or throttle. And I'm fortunate in that I get to fly airplanes like the F-20 today. Now, that's not my only love. I love ultralights because I believe for the pure joy of flying, ultralights are the answer. They burn about a gallon an hour. They don't go nowhere and they don't haul anything, but it's sure fun to fly them. Any questions? Thank you very much. We can take a question or two if you have any. The question is, is it any different than... Yeah, it, is there any difference flying faster in the speed of sound than under the speed of sound? I, I, I put it this way. Some airplanes just sound faster than they're flying and others fly faster than sound. But uh, no. As far as the pilot's concerned, he's in a pressurized cockpit. The only thing that happened in the old days because of straight, thick wings you got buffeting because of these shock waves formed on the thickest part of the wings behind the shock waves was turbulent air. And we were able to lick this by going to thinner swept wings and also going to computer or air data computers that change your control surfaces to counteract those trim changes as you go through Mach 1. Going Mach 2, nothing changes either, or 3 or 4. It just gets hotter and costs more. Yeah, Mr. Yeager. Go ahead. All right. I assume you're uh, familiar with uh, Tom Wolfe's The Right Stuff. I just wanted to ask uh, how accurate of a picture was that that he painted for us, uh, yeah, the development of the rocket and, uh, and all that. Asking me if I'm familiar with Tom Wolfe, like asking the Pope if he's a Catholic. But yes, I'm very familiar. When he wrote the three paragraphs about me in the book, I made sure that those paragraphs were accurate. And basically, that's the way it happened with the X-1, the X-1A, and the NF-104. 
in 63 when I was coming out of the astronaut school. But Tom did an excellent job on the book, and you might be interested to know that uh, we finished the film about the book. It's a three-hour-long film. will be premiered October the 16th this year. Thank you very much.